Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing Ash Wednesday. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Dr. Hilary Raining, who is the rector of St. Christopher's Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, and creator of The Hive, online spirituality and wellness digital community. And the Reverend Canon Lydia Buckland, who is from Marquette, Michigan, and is the Canon to the Ordinary for Discipleship and Vitality with the Episcopal Diocese of Northern Michigan, as well as the Director of the Mutual Ministry Initiative at Virginia Theological Seminary. And last but not least, Sister Madeline Mary, who is Prioress at the Community of St. Mary Southern Province and has been a religious for 51 years. She is a spiritual director and helps people explore the connections between faith, care for creation, and Benedictine spirituality. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much, everyone, for uh, being willing to be a part of this. I'm so glad that you're here. And uh, let's just start with kind of you know, we're still in COVID, but it's still a, a new year. And what's important to keep in mind this Lent? I think you're so right to remember that it is, it's still COVID tied in many different ways. And, and uh, it, it, every community, I think, is being affected a little bit differently. One thing that we're trying to keep in mind is how to make this as embodied a Lent as possible, because we've been looking at each other through screens for so long how can we actually be physically together? Or if we can't be physically together, how can we still make meditations that we're doing together? Um, one, one example is on Shrove Tuesday, we're going to bring everybody together to an outside bonfire to have outdoor s'mores. And the, exactly. And then we're going to have what we're calling a bonfire nice. of disappointments, <laughs> where we, we go ahead and burn agendas that didn't work out, letting invitations that couldn't be accepted, et cetera. Um, and then we're going to invite the parents to do a bit of primal screening. Uh, all of this may sound silly, but there's a kenosis to it, right? You know, an actual release so that then we can start Lent uh, in that Ash Wednesday way, using those ashes uh, to to really settle in and say, okay, now that we've we've had a kenosis of body, how can we be together in spirit? I did a I did a wedding where you know sometimes they do that unity candle thing or they pour sand and this one they they made s'mores as their wedding thing to each other and so I did like a theology of the s'more and I talked about you need to have a firm foundation and that was the graham cracker and I talked about marriage requiring energy which was the chocolate and I talked about marriage needing flexibility which is the marshmallow <laughs> and and you know the sweetness of, of the two people's love and all of that and so I think you talking about that just made me think about that those are also recipes that we need for COVID right we need the foundation of Christ we need the energy of the chocolate and the energy in our church you know all of, like so you could totally use that and then part of that feel free to steal it and do whatever you need with that so. absolutely I 100%. I just thought to myself, oh my gosh, we're three minutes in and you've already given me my sermon. Thank you. <laughs> Podcast done. <laughs> Hillary, I, I did something like what you're describing a few years back with sisters, you know, uh, just talking about, um, we, we had a hibachi and we put on little pieces of paper, all the things that had been a disappointment all of the things that were losses and we burned them and 
there is a, a phrase from the Psalms, you know, that the incense goes up to God. And so the smoke was, was an image of the prayers going up to God for the healing that is necessary. And for sure, during COVID time, we certainly need a lot of that. Mm. I love that focus on embodiment and on presence and actually like focusing on Lent, like on this season and what it means. Because last year, I feel like we said, okay, life is Lent. Let's not beat ourselves up. Let's not do like, let's not try to take on too much more. Um, we don't need to focus on penitence and be like feeling bad. Let's just keep going because this will be over soon. And I think this year is calling for something different. Um, I think it really is that, no, we need to look at Lent. Like we, yes, life is tough. And now maybe this is our new normal of, of living through it. And maybe we can like expect more from our communities and ourselves to be intentional around doing some deeper theological reflection on what it means to be in a time of of Lent, of of fasting, whatever that we know we might take that to mean, and focusing on our complacency with things, our disappointments with one another, with ourselves. Like, you know, it doesn't sound like exciting work, but I think maybe it is a great time for healing. Um, when you know we're physically healing from this pandemic, but to really do some corporate healing together as a church, I kind of welcome it in in a strange way. I, I don't know that I've looked forward to it as much as, you know, this Ash Wednesday, it's like we're launching it, right? And I actually am drawn to these shorter seasons of a beginning and an end and something that we can kind of wrap around. And so that feels good to me as something to enter into as a church. One of my thoughts or questions is how do we confess sin and talk about sin and think of sin maybe as missing the mark or not being in right relationship? How do we talk about that without moving to this place of shame? Like if we think about shame as, you know, I am a bad person versus I am a good person who maybe is out of right relationship. I wrote a book on, on confession in the church and it was basically a Linton study when it came right down to it because I think we have very good theology around this stuff, but some of our language is actually doing some disservice because the prayer services that we have will use that word shame mm. interchangeably with guilt. And those are two very, very different human emotions, right? You know, guilt, as you just said, is I've missed the mark. I've done something I want to make amends for or, you know, confess. It's, it allows for the possibility, though, of transformation. Shame is that part where we say, I am something wrong. And so there can be no transformation if you believe at your very core that you are wrong or somebody has, let's say, helped you to, to be ashamed of yourself. So I, I think for people who are preaching, when you have these liturgies that are some of the most, I think, poetic and beautiful liturgies, it's all the more reason, though, to highlight what we are saying about our theology and help correct some of the liturgical language that we've inherited so as to not continue to do a soul injury, a spiritual injury that can really happen around confession. It's, it's the place where a lot of people feel their most moral injury. Hmm. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. We deal with it in confession. You know, we deal with it in the examination of conscience. And 
oftentimes that people immediately go to shame. And I wonder if, honestly, I believe that one of the reasons is that we've been preconditioned to be that way, to think that way from early childhood. I think one of the ways we could start here is to think about how you've already been programmed. You know, from early childhood, you're told, oh, you have to be popular, you have to be wealthy, you have to be successful. Your parents won't love you if they're not proud of you for something. And we internalize all of that. And it's very unhealthy. It doesn't lead to anything good. Shame, as opposed to guilt, guilt will actually push you in the right direction to make amends, to be contrite, to get back to community. Whereas shame just pushes a person down and gives them no energy for life makes them forget that they are the loved child of God, you know. And I think that that is so critical for us to remember that examination of conscience is with one who loves you, (laughs) not that hates you, that is not the one who is going to damn you to eternal hell, but the one who wants you to be healed and whole, which is really the meaning of perfection, you know, Mm -hmm. I think just some self-examination on, so what are you not guilty for that you came into the world with, you know, how has your environment conditioned you to feel like you are a bad person, you know, and also, you know, at the same time, uh, cutting some slack for the people who actually make us feel that way, because they too are the child of God, and they too have been Mm. conditioned by their own environment. And so how do we help each other get to a point where we practice respectful listening so that we can heal and acknowledge the child of God Mm. in every human being? As I was thinking about our conversation today, I kept getting stuck on this word, forgiving the sins of all who are penitent, and saying that you know, we're all, those of us who are penitent are forgiven. And so I thought, what even do we mean by penitent? Like what, how, how do you say that one is penitent or not penitent? And I did a little deep dive and what I found was showing sorrow for sins, which to me, um, that feeling of sorrow of like genuine sadness of genuine injury, shared injury with others or shared, you know, shared offense at the hurt of others, like deeply caring about it, like that transcended something for me that I could work with. But then our collect, when you look at the collect and it goes on to say, create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness. And then I was like, man, (laughs) did we have to go there? (laughs) That acknowledging our wretchedness. And I wrestled with it, like, does that have to be there? And so I'm actually curious about you all. And I know that there are other people who love, you know, in the right one where we talk about how we're not even, you know, the crumbs under the table to eat from the crumbs under the table. And there are people in congregations I've served that have loved, they just love that line is healing or meaningful for them. And so when, what do we do with stuff like that in liturgy around wretchedness or our unworthiness? like? I feel like I'm maybe throwing a baby out with the bathwater being like, let's just get rid of it. Like, did- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've thought a lot about this and, and, and written about it. And what I, where I come out for myself is 
I've almost started to look at that as lament. And by that, I mean, there have been times when I absolutely have felt wretchedness. I have felt the shame. And while naming it in liturgy can actually be really problematic when not unpacked, when it's just left there to sit there without any explanation. But when I start to unpack it, it gives me a chance to say it out loud in community. I can then say, but there's more to this story then, right? Than just my own understanding of my own wretchedness and, and shame, which are not salvific. <laughs> and I, you know, they're, they're, they don't lead to anything healthy. Mm. And to be able to lament mm. all that in my community, not even the sin, to lament my, my treating the sin as bigger than God itself. Uh, as though somehow the sin is going to be more powerful than God's ability to forgive give me or even my ability to forgive myself. I can say it and then I can move on from it. And there's there's a power in that, at least at least how I've felt about it. But without unpacking it, it's dangerous territory. Just like sin in general. You know, Brene Brown talks about shame as the thing that kills vulnerability and joy and connection because it keeps us from wanting to share with one another. It keeps us small and hidden. Uh, and it's not until we actually have some conversations around it or listening that shame actually gets shrunk down and actually starts to break apart a little bit. So for me, it's it's being able to talk about my contrite heart, to be able to talk about my wretchedness, to be able to talk about my shame and realize they are the falsehood that comes along with sin, which is false in general. You know, it's it's a lot. So that to me is is how I've unpacked it personally. But Others may have very different opinions on that, and I honor that too. This kind of reminds me of how some people have, all of us at some point, <laughs> have trouble with the Psalms and, you know, the violence of the Psalms and the accusations made by the Psalms. And I think part of it has to do with where you are when you're reading those words. You know, I think... I don't know about you, but I will admit to myself and others that I do feel wretched when I'm not at one with other people. <laughs> when I have, I feel there's a break in our relationship. And when, particularly if I have been the cause of it. Uh, so wretchedness is true at some point, but maybe, I mean, we say the general confession <laughs> every time we have the Eucharist, uh, at least in some churches, and you may not be there at that moment. You know, you may not feel like that at all. You And at that point, maybe, I, I tell people sometimes when they're dealing with the Psalms, they say, maybe it's not where you are at the moment, but maybe somebody else is. And so saying those words is also maybe a way of interceding for the person who is there at that moment. Sister, you make me think of something I think that is really profound about the way these services go together and speaks to this point. It's one thing if the, if the institution is calling you wretched, if the institution is saying you should be ashamed of yourself. Right. It's another thing when you name it within yourself and say, I'm here in this community of the body of Christ to name it, help me with it. And those are two different things. And when it's, when it's in the former, the institution piece, shaming you, which yeah. it has been many different ways over the centuries, that's where I find it to be so detrimental and goes past what you've said, which is holding an intercessory for others. Um, it, sure. it goes, you can't when you're being shamed, you know, impossible. No, absolutely not. I had wondered, like I, Sometimes I 
people have asked about like St. Augustine and the, I think it's St. Augustine, uh, the idea of original sin and all of that whole piece. And I, I always struggle with that. As Indian people, at least the Lakota people, we don't think that way. But we do think in a way, and the way I think about it is, is we would say that we're not perfect because only the creator is perfect. And so therefore we are all, you know, we're all going to fall short of whatever perfection is, but that's expected because we're human. And so that's what I think of when, or and that's also what I tell the people when they're like, I don't like the idea of original sin. I'm like, well, we're not perfect. That's all it's saying. And so that doesn't make us wretched. It just means that we're not perfect and we, we can never be perfect. Like we're never going to be the creator, but we can be in good relationship with the creator and good relationship with each other. That's kind of what, I, when you were talking about, that's kind of what I was thinking about. I think too, sometimes the way different cultures interpret it. So some of these were written right in England where they were like, you know, one of the great, great, and I'm using that in quotes, great colonizing countries, right? The wealthy and the powerful and the rich, where maybe they need to be brought down because they're always thinking that they're in that wealthy, powerful place. That's when that was written. And now I think as, you know, as indigenous people, a lot of us struggle with that, right? One kind of language, because we've already been put in that place by society and by other people. And maybe we need to be that whole, you know, knock the heady off their things is the Magnificat I'm thinking of and bringing up the lowly kind of thinking about that is mm-hmm. also what came to my mind. You're naming something that's actually really critical in the way we do confession that I think often gets missed. Um, in the in the baptismal ceremony, uh, you know, we right before we go into what would have used to been the exorcism part, right? The denying of sin in the baptismal promises. The, the things that we say we are denying are evil on a cosmic scale, the forces of wickedness, et cetera, things on a, on a corporate scale, sins of sexism, racism, et cetera, and then the individual. And when we make our confession at church every Sunday, we always use the we language, which means we're not confessing our individual sins, which I know is, is a time when many of us do do that work, uh, which is lovely but not intentional because the, the actual we language means that the church is confessing her sins right now of colonialism, of exclusionism, of, of all the ways that the church has been roped in to those, those pieces that have broken humanity so much. And then Ash Wednesday and Lent gives us a chance to then do the personal work of individual confession as well. Both things incredibly important. And then we, we say the rest of it, the evil, the cosmic forces, that's for God to handle. So when you put all that together, suddenly it sounds very different. Mm, yeah. I have a little bit of a different slant on that because I'm concerned about people's intentionality. And um, sometimes I think the general confession serves no purpose at all uh, <laughs> because I don't think people are actually present to the words. And they're not really thinking about them. They're just going by rote, you know. Amos had a few words about that, you know, at liturgy without the heart, you know. And But I think it's also important for us to also remember that we are part of the institutional problem. <laughs> and, and that mm. institutional sin is made of us all, you know. And so... There is a sense in which we are confessing our own sins, um, whether they were intentional or unconscious or whatever, and in that sense that um, that we have missed the mark, that we have hurt people in, for whatever reason, known and unknown, 
um, I always I always focus in on the sins that we have uh, done and those things that we have left undone. You know, where not to do something is also to let evil reign. I don't. I I, I practice uh, personal confession to a priest. Um, but I don't think that's the only time. You can speak directly to God. You don't actually need a priest to make a confession. And so if one's intentionality in the general confession is to identify, we need to, we need to be actually be thinking about the words, not just with our heads, but, but with our hearts, with our intentionality. To It can be all that we need <laughs> to identify how we have not served our brothers and sisters the way we should have and not honored God above all things and through our lives, not just our liturgy or whatever. Absolutely. I wasn't trying to say in any way <laughs> that, that it has to, has to be through a priest or anything. Yeah, agreed. Wholeheartedly agree. So I'm thinking about Psalm 103, which I one of my favorite psalms. And when I was younger, they would... They would sing this psalm. I'm trying to remember the tune. It was like, bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Something like that. As I'm hearing it, I'm thinking about how we, how the Lord heals our infirmities and renews our youth like eagles. And so how does that, in this time of COVID, it really hits me differently. Um, so I'm just wondering, how does that sit with y'all? And how do we think about that? What does it mean to be healed? And sometimes I wonder about that too, if people ask for healing prayer and they're like terminally ill or whatever. This this imagery and the idea of the the the, the bird, you know, and, and certainly in indigenous culture, the eagle as being the one that can soar high enough to bring the the prayers of the people to, to God. Um I, I was thinking about this very thing the other day. I, back when it was warm enough to go around the solstice on a hike, I went out on a uh, and did some yoga on a rock that I normally do out here by a trail, and just kind of laid back to soak in some of the sun. And as I was seeing that, um, I closed my eyes and then I opened them again, and there was a black vulture just circling around me, but like high up in the air, doing that thing where they were just following the the waves of the 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 wind. And to me, it didn't didn't strike me as scary or weird at all. I was like, ah, oh, this is like the Holy Spirit just taking away some of the dead stuff, you know, and just like floating it. Like I know this sounds like maybe silly, but that that healing was no work that I was doing. It was just simply being present and open and, and the spirit was doing the work of the healing. And all I had to do was notice. And to me, there's, there's a lot of things we think we need to do in this capitalist society that tells us you have to be more and do more and produce more. And if you're not healed yet, it's because you're probably not doing the things you need to do to take care of yourself. Then even self-care becomes something that's commodified. Uh, the, the truth is, healing comes from God. And if we just notice what God is doing, that might be enough. I think Psalm 103 too makes me think a lot about what Sister Madeline said about like the one that we're confessing to is the one that who loves us. And I think this whole Psalm is about like, bless the Lord, the one who's always with us, who's always healing us, who's always standing there, who's always had 
is this great mm. mercy um, among us who remembers where we are but dust and our days are like the grass. We flourish like a flower of the field. I mean, what a beautiful like love sonnet to God um, just to, to, as a reminder that like, that's what we're surrounded by, even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the hurt, even if healing means comfort, you know, if healing means being restored to um, being one with God, which might mean death, you know, like that's who God is. It's not, um, it doesn't have to be like this victorious sense of, um, like the ending to our stories where everyone's healed and everything's perfect and COVID is no more. And we're, you know, our churches are filled and, you know, this beautiful sense of um, things going back to the way it used to be like, that's not so much, I think what this Psalm is calling us towards, but really as a, as a parent cares for us. So the Lord cares for, for us. Um, and there's that word in there, you know, for those who fear him, um, and so that's a whole other thing we could talk about is how we use fear in terms of motivating um, our our belief in following the Lord. But um, yeah, I just feel like this is such a, it's actually a very uplifting, beautiful, um, positive psalm to have on mm-hmm. Ash Wednesday when the rest is a little yeah. more doom and gloom. Agreed. I always like the Isaiah psalm, or not the Isaiah psalm, but Isaiah's prophecy um, like, is this not the fast that I choose? And then it has all this list of all these things that we can be doing. It's so justice filled. I'm like, yes, yes. And then just the idea of like, we should be like a watered garden. Yes. Where have you seen our church address injustice or where might we need to address injustice more? Oh, I love that you, that, I love that you named that about Isaiah 58. Like it is, right? It's like the other Magnificat that we forget about that's also in there as well. This the this is the fast. Like talk about words of indict indictment over um this false sense of fasting and piety, but like it's right there. Nope, this is the fast we're talking about. Like loose the bonds of injustice, undo the thongs of the yoke, let the oppressed go free. Like that I love that call to strong action um that i think i I don't know i feel like we are pivoting as a church in doing some of the work for the first time i was very heartened by the work that happened at winter talk the gathering of indigenous folks in the episcopal church most recently um to name that truth around boarding schools to name our own complicity around it um to Mm. just be very open and honest about the pain and um, and calling on the rest of the church to pay attention and to notice and to um, say, this is us, this is who we are. That to me felt like something that hasn't happened um, in recent history and that I was very proud of the work of the indigenous community within the Episcopal church to, to use their voice in this way and to call on and um, and that the presiding bishop and the president of the House of Deputies attended and seemed to hear. And we'll see what work comes from it. I mean, I think the work itself is the hard work to do and that the rest of the church needs to pay attention as we, we do this work. And the, also the reparations work with the Black communities of the Episcopal Church around slavery and 
just the ways in general that the Episcopal Church has profited on the backs and through the lives of black and brown folks in general. Um, that's part of our history. Like that's who we are. And so I think, you know, we're, we're starting to do that and, and huge props to you Shaniqua for helping lead us through that, because I know that your staff role and position, um, has, has helped foster that in a, in a kind and caring and grace, gracious way. Yeah, I, I would echo all of that. And where I feel convicted in, personally in this, uh, in this Isaiah reading is just the first line. Shout out. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. I think um, so often I, I, I find that as an Episcopalian, a lifelong Episcopalian, uh, we like to tend to hold our punches sometimes when it comes to like even making our faith known in the community. Uh, you know, we can be a little bit, um, we want to, we want to not offend and in not offending, we will sometimes not say anything, uh, which is much worse, <laughs> much worse. I would rather be, uh, I'd rather be shouting out with works of justice. And if people are offended, good, you know, like that, that would, I think is the uh, charge from Isaiah here. And coupled with then he says shout out lift up your voices but then says how to do it with action you know as saint francis would say preach the gospel always and when necessary use words um this is the best way to shout because we get a lot of shouting these days a lot of people just yelling at one another but actual proclamation which is what isaiah is trying to lead us to is one that looks like the kingdom of God and doesn't just give lip service or even worse, stays deadly quiet. I agree that we we need to be more pronounced in the way we address things. Um, I think that with everybody shouting in right now, <laughs> we see have a lot of people shouting. It's so much shouting that oftentimes it's very hard to be heard by anyone and that maybe some um i mean part of the whole one of the differences between cure and healing is that we're not asking god in this this i hope we're not anyway in this psalm to be a magician that just takes away our sin and just takes away you know disease or whatever it happens to be but healing is a process and people have to engage in their own healing and we the church have to engage in that healing too and some of that healing involves pain it it involves you know cutting open the wounds and and getting the festering mm. whatever out and and i think that we're not very good at that <laughs> We want to fast forward through all that, you know, say, okay, I, I forgive you. It's over. But there, that doesn't do anything, really. It just makes us maybe feel good about ourselves being good people. Mm. But it doesn't actually heal anything. To, to actually go through the healing, then we have to deal with the real problem and identify it and enter into a respectful conversation about it that actually ends with some action that means something that has respect for the pain that people have 
born silently for years. And so that, you know, um, Richard Rohr says, and he, he's the uh, director mm. for the Center for Action and Contemplation. And one of the things he says so frequently is he has people that want to reform the world come all the time. And, and he says the problem is they don't want to actually be still. They just want to take action. And so it's misguided action. And he says, what we first have to do is listen. And we're not good at that. We have to listen to another person's pain, even if it makes us uncomfortable, you know, and acknowledge that it's real. Feelings are. They don't go away because you say to somebody, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. It's the long haul of going through the process of healing that we need to commit to. And we're conditioned already to, you know, think we Mm. can do something in 10 minutes. Communications are so fast. You know, we should be over this. People tell people you should be over somebody's death or you should be over that pain or whatever. Why? Why do you think that? You, you've got to acknowledge the pain first before you can actually work on the healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sister, something you said just makes me think there's such a wide difference between magic and miracles, <laughs> right? Because magic is um, sometimes manipulative. It's when we tell God what we want God to do. Uh, it's, it's, as you said, the the cure, not the healing, right? You know, just, I, I want to tell God it's, it's a manipulation versus miracles and which is maturation. It's maturity. It's, it's asking God to use you to do what God wants to do. And is, a you know, so many of us, I think want just a, a magic wand or to be God's advisory committee rather than <laughs> to let God tell us what God wants and, and, that's where real healing comes in because it acknowledges actual pain. It acknowledges this is going to be a process. It acknowledges it's going to be on God's timetable, not on our timetable. And that's, that's, if that's not maturation, I don't know what is. Just one more word on that. Uh, I think that one of the biggest problems doesn't have to do with other people. Um, except in the sense that we have been programmed by them, uh, as we grow up, but it has to do also with our own inability to believe that we are loved. That if we started from a position of knowing that God in fact does love us, and as wounded as we are, we are trying to love each other in our very failed way. But beginning again, you know, that's what repentance really means, turn around, you know, go in a different direction, begin again, but begin again this time with more insight, with more uh, out of a place of not so much woundedness as, as a sense of being enveloped by the love of God to empower us to become that light in the world, to become that healed person that then can contribute to another person's healing. But it's the patience required is a big one. I think if our church could be that space 
for people, if our faith communities, and I don't mean, I don't even mean church on Sunday morning, but if, you know, intentional farming communities and house churches and cafes, and if we could find ways to provide that space to practice these ways of listening and feeling loved and authentically experiencing it, like, can you think about how that would just seep into the rest of our lives and our communities and transform the spaces around us. I mean, I think people are longing for a space like that where they can actually sit and listen um, and be present. And, and we don't, we don't take advantage of that often as churches because we feel like there's this particular way we need to be and this thing we need to be doing in order to do the, the liturgy and to rehearse the, as you said, like this rote way of, um, you know, that Amos would have words for us for, for just saying the words that we think we're supposed to say, especially as Episcopalians, you know, like we love our liturgies and we love saying those things, but are we still being transformed by them? Um, and I, I just feel like it's such an invitation for us to actually try on some of these things as small groups, as large groups, as like, there are so many creative ways we could be these little communities of change and of healing and of confessing. There's a um, author and, and professor in Des Moines, Jennifer Harvey, who wrote the book, Dear White Christians, um, who helped co-found a community in Des Moines that since COVID hasn't been meeting, but it's called We Are Church Confessing. And they would meet outdoors, like on the lawns outside of the prisons or at, um, you know, corporations where there's like pollution issues or they would just show up together and they'd have signs, but they'd do a simple liturgy and they would say, you know, we are the church showing up and standing up and saying collectively, we've participated in this and it's time to take action. Like, I love that idea, that sense of, um, how can we actually be the church in a, in a public way, but also, also maybe in a, in a quiet, you know, sitting and listening type way. I think we need the both and, which is why it's so great that we all have so many varied gifts and skills to offer, um, to, to do it together. I once did a retreat for a group of young, um, Methodists, uh, who wanted to learn about Lectio. And I was amazed by the group. They were all young people that that basically didn't feel like they fit in any other uh, Methodist church because of who they were. And so they wanted to learn Lectio in order to start processing who they were and to become a church that was moved by the inspiration of the heart. <laughs> and we spent the entire day doing Lectio. And they told me, I, I taught different groups and how to do it, and then we did it. And, and people cried during the day. They said, I have never felt like this before. And because they felt like they were being heard and they could be who they really are without any facade. And I, I, I'll recommend that to you. That's one way you can begin that journey 
Another way some people find is centering prayer, you know, and then having your conversation after that practice, just connecting with the heart. One of the things I was thinking about is the conversation about healing and how healing is anybody who's gone through healing. Um, if you've had a surgery or hip replacement, like, you know, that healing is painful. And so it takes time. It's not something that just sort of magically happens There are magical pieces to it, at least in the sense that like, you know, you don't have to do anything like consciously think of your wounds healing. Your body just kind of does that. And God kind of does. I think that that when you talked about needing to take time to listen in our church, so often we want to move straight from like the sin of racism or all this stuff. We want to go straight into like, okay, now forgiveness and happy copy. And now we're going to move on. And we have to take that time to heal and take that time to um, listen to the pain that people have. And I think that's, that's one of the things I think about when I think about Lent is that gives us time to really think about that or remember that that's an important process. We don't just move from Ash Wednesday to Easter, right? We have that whole period of time in between there uh, and thinking about that. And as you were talking about different things that we can do, it made me think about the gospel and the gospel in there. Jesus is like saying, you know, don't can't remember. It's like, don't be like the hypocrites and do all this stuff outside and, you know, do all this. But at the same time, it's like, we're talking, you know, we have to, how do you evangelize? And we're in this state when like, we're supposed to be doing live streams and Facebook and Instagram, you know, all this stuff. Cause that's sometimes the only way our church services actually get out there if we're not having church in person. How do we do, how do we be true to what Jesus is saying in this gospel and also yet follow that thing, especially like here, then we're wearing these crosses on our foreheads that everybody sees. And it's just the irony of that. And what, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I so I, I love this question because I think a bit of a disconnect that our parishioners feel every year too. I get a question about this probably every year. And I, I always love it because there's something about that tension that we are supposed to be proclaiming and yet not be haughty like the the people Jesus is criticizing mm. here in this particular thing right you know don't be like the hypocrites well you know if if wearing a, a cross on your head once a year is is a something that is out of line with the way you're acting 365 days of the year <laughs> then there is a hypocritical part there right you know there's a problem um, and and so it's, I think it's the invitation to, to say, to do some examination around what is humility, you know, and what's the difference between that and, and haughtiness. Um, true humility isn't beating yourself down and hiding under a bushel basket, you know, to use another Jesus phrase. It's, and it's certainly not lifting yourself in a haughty fashion. It's coming to the foot of the cross and seeing Jesus who Jesus is and seeing you who you are as a beloved child of God, right? And so I sometimes think, if we can live between the balance of, you know, you are dust and to dust you shall return and all that that means, the humility that that brings in the, in the humble sense of the word, and you are a beloved child of God, if you can live in that balance, then there mm. won't be the hypocriticalness. Like you'll, you'll be giving, you'll be naming who everybody really is. God is who God is. Beloved child of God is who, who I am, et cetera. You know, it's, it's, it's an invitation for consideration, I think. And where's the disconnect in your own life, right? You know, where's the disconnect between the humility we all, I think, hope to be and maybe the haughtiness that we sometimes fall into or the self-deprecation we sometimes fall into, right? And so the disconnect becomes perfectly balanced in that gospel moment. There should be, you should feel like there's a disconnect, I think. 
I like to remind people that um, that everyone is dust and that dust is actually quite useful. It is it makes up all the earth that is land and it is from that that all good new growth occurs is not mm. wasted at all and that we are not only a child of god we are the child of the universe we depend on the universe the creation for our existence we're not you know i have a big problem with the word dominion uh, in in the sense that some people want to interpret that um, when God gives us dominion over the earth, he's talking about care for creation, stewardship, you know, how do we take care of the creation? And re with a reminder that if we don't, <laughs> climate change should remind us of this right now, if we don't, we will be the first ones to not exist. <laughs> you know, but we are a part of all of creation. And that as a part of that, not only should we be relishing the gifts that we have been given, but also the responsibilities we have been given to care for everything else. That in itself should remind us of who we are and what place we have in creation. Um, and be, help us, I, I hope, become more grateful human beings rather than more dominating types. I think that symbol of the ashes on the forehead, um, you know, I've, I've, I've wondered about that too. Like, should we be doing it? Is it kind of a show-offy thing to say, oh, I went to church today. Like, I'm a good Christian, checkbox. Um, and a couple years ago, it must have been right before the pandemic, we did an ashes to go downtown in Marquette. And, um, you know, I'm always just blown away by that experience and by the tears and the gratitude of people who and people running out of restaurants, cooks, you know, in their cook outfit, their pants or straight pants or whatever, like in the freezing cold snow running out and saying, I heard you were out here. I had to work today. And, you know, I'm thinking they probably weren't going to go to church anyway, just because I, you know, but they mm. felt like they needed to say it like, Oh, I can't make it to church, but I'm so glad you're here. Um, and then the tears and the, and then often 80, 90% of the time they would say, mm. my sister was just diagnosed with cancer. My child mm. is having a hard time. I like this, please pray for me. And I mean, and I'm gutted. I'm like standing there like, this is why, this is it. Like, this is why we do it. And that sense of intimacy of like connecting with another human being in this, it makes me teary thinking about it. Um, And all it took was me standing there with a, a, some ashes. Like, okay, if that makes me a show off, like then I'll, I'll keep, doing it because and then there is when you're in the grocery store and you see someone else it's like you get it you know it you know what that was to sit to stand in front of someone else in a state of 
of vulnerability asking for prayer for our humanity. Like, what a gift, you know, what a gift. Um, so, yeah, I think like what Hillary said, like, if we, you know, if we're living our lives in a way that doesn't match it, sure, we can, you know, feel bad about being a show off. But my experience with the ashes um, on foreheads has not been that. It truly has been a sense of something people have just needed um, and and a meaning that goes beyond words um, and beyond, even beyond the liturgy. You know, there are people who have said like, well, you're just doing a quickie. You're not hmm. getting the full theology behind it. And that's doing a disservice to people. There are people who aren't comfortable with the ashes to go, but there's something unspoken that in that transaction that um, I think is also okay. You know, it's also enough in that. I, I think also, so I resonate so much of what, with what you're saying, you know, we, mm-hmm. we have, we have 40 days of Lent, we have 50 days of Easter, right? And, and the, one of the marks of Easter, of course, is baptism, which would have been an extreme time of anointing, right? You know, the, the stuff that we put on foreheads in baptism is much more than just a little bit of dust uh, in, at the beginning of that cycle. And, and that might be where some of the disconnect comes in as well, right? Because, because if people only see it mm. as a mark of, I don't know, contrition or whatever, and they don't see it as the vulnerability that you've just named Lydia, as the joyful naming the shadow side of life, then the anointing piece gets diminished a bit, doesn't it? Because it's it's not being able to see, wow, if we name we name it all here in this faith, nothing is outside of what God wants us to talk about. Like the the joy of anointing, where we are kings and queens and and made, you know, children of God and God's kingdom. And then the truthfulness of the ashes too. You know, they're they're both real and they are a part of a whole. And we need to name all of that, I think, as, as to, to get the whole sense mm. of it. I think also in the mm-hmm. midst of COVID, um, ashes may have a different way of um, communicating to people because it reminds us of our mortality. And there's been so much death, so much sickness during COVID. Um, but while I was listening to you, I I thought of another thing that um, I experienced to some degree. Um, mm. When 9-11 happened, um, I wasn't there. I was in Switzerland. Um, and But I came home, and I needed to have that be real for me. I was living in New York, and so I went to... Um, the World Trade Center mm. area, and mm. a healthcare person that was there gave me a piece of glass from the World Trade Center, and it was covered with dust. Mm. To this day, I have never washed that glass because it continually reminds me of the lives of all of those people who died. And that too is going to be part of people's experience of, of putting ashes on their foreheads this year. And that too will mm-hmm. remind us all of how we are actually 
sharing a common humanity in that very mortality and honoring the lives of the people who have died. I went to a, I went to Ash Wednesday service and then I went to an Indian buffet. This I think was like two or three years ago. And the person who was behind the counter when I was checking out saw the ashes and asked me, I can't remember the word he used, but he's like, oh, do you do bindis or whatever he said? And I was like, and as I had to try and explain, but I asked him first to explain what he meant by his understanding of what that symbol means in his culture and just the connection and parallels between the two different symbols and how, who applies them, you know, like in his culture, they're applied by your parents or someone who loves you. And I'm like, well, they're applied by our priest usually, or, you know, somebody. And just, it was so neat how this was like this moment of mm-hmm. cross, both cross cultural, but also cross religious, right. Interaction that I thought was really neat that I had a connection then that I could build uh, with that person then. I love that too, because this, that part of the head, right, you know, is is sacred across cultures. Um, we, you know, in, in the yoga tradition, we often talk about it as being the third eye, right? And and from neuroscience, we know that's the part of the brain that uh, is the higher functioning. You might say it's the one that controls and regulates emotions, and it can help with imagination and and is able to storytell. And it's the part that gets turned off when we're in a constant state of trauma and stress. Right, because all of that part of that, uh, the energy that's going to that frontal cortex gets taken back to the part of our primal brain that needs fight, flight, freeze, right? So when we slow down enough, like we are asked to do in Lent, to, to be mindful enough to turn that frontal cortex back on by telling, telling ourselves, yes, we might be in a time of trauma, but that's not the whole of the story then we do turn on that that third eye area, right? That area where we're able to, to see that cross-cultural piece as well. Um, and I, I just think that's, that's incredible because what you're, what you're asking to do in Ash Wednesday is to say, I'm, I'm, letting the, I'm letting God, I'm bowing the intellect to God. I'm bowing all my highest functions to God. I, I'm letting all of that um, in that true sense of humility be back to God. And, I think that's cross-cultural. Absolutely. So I see this in the gospel. Um, it says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And, and our church, I think, has at least our, you know, our, for example, our church pension thing, we have more money. Like even if the world ended, we have enough money to pay off all the pensions of everybody right now. And then even extra, I think, after that, they said. Um, and how do we, how do we store up treasures in heaven? And um, it also says if our treasure is where our heart is, what does that say about the amounts of our budget spent on reconciliation and social justice work? And so, just curious, just talk a little, talk amongst yourselves. What what do you think about all that? Mic drop on that question. Microphone <laughs> drop. That's a good one. Yeah, I, right. Like not just our budgets, but like historical budgets, right? You know, how much money have we put in things like buildings compared to uh, building centers of reconciliation, right? You know, I, I think if we were able to, and I actually used this particular passage during premarital counseling to remind people that like, you know, 
how you do, how you handle money together and where you put your money together shows your uh, like your priorities as a couple together, right? And and so same thing with church. <laughs> this is our the marriage between Christ and His church, right? How we are putting our money it shows how we actually care. So um, I don't know. I think I might use that question with my next budget meeting. Good question. <laughs> I've gone to churches and asked to see their budget because, um, especially if I'm going to talk to the vestry, because I said, you, you can take a look at the budget and tell what the values of that church are and what is where they really put their treasure, <laughs> what they consider valuable, you know, and um, it's, a, it's a good thermometer, I think of do we really focus on outreach and and care for our communities and so forth? Um, or is it mostly an overhead, somebody's high salary? I think this is certainly a question that um, we need to wrestle with <clears throat> as a church. It's one that um, is tough, right? Because it involves a lot of our paychecks and a lot of our church budget. Um, and so it's, it's a personal one, but we've, I was reading an article recently that someone had suggested to me, um, around, and it's it's someone who had written about the Episcopal church dying, which, you know, we hear often and, and they had looked at the numbers and, um, and, and the most recent, it was, this was a recent article, the, billions and billions of dollars that the Episcopal Church had. And I had heard in the past that if you took all of the assets of the Episcopal Church and divided it up, you could give every member of the Episcopal Church a million dollars. So I said, you know what, I'm going to look at these numbers and actually divide it myself. And so I took the numbers from the article and divided them actually by average Sunday attendance, by the number of people attending on Sunday. We could each have $29 million dollars. $29 $29 million is how much money each oh person who attends church on a Sunday morning. If you took all of the assets of our seminaries and our pensions and our affiliations, we, and to then look at our siblings in places like Navajo land and in the Dakotas and in inner city churches, um, Latino communities, where they can't afford clergy and they are have buildings that are falling apart and people are hungry. Uh, I am ashamed and unsettled. I'm scandalized by this. I had I had never heard that statistic before. I'm scandalized by this. There is a sense that it is scandalous that there. When you look at the numbers, the size of our church, the amount of money we have, <laughs> and our narrative continues to be, oh, we just don't have enough money. <laughs> we just are struggling financially. And we have places that are doing capital campaigns for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I had a co- clergy colleague friend in a you know, pretty well-off community say, I'm really struggling, Lydia. I'm really struggling We've just spent six weeks raising funds and we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to update and better equip our building that is going to sit empty for six and a half days a week. And it feels like it's sinful. And 
this person is not alone in that. And if we're not uncomfortable by this, then I think we're a bit hypocritical. And I don't have answers. I know it's hard. I know that blowing up the church from the inside is painful. And looking at our money, honestly, is it is tricky mm. and complicated. And it's not just a mat, it's not just reallocating and sharing, and we can't just put it all in one pot and divide it up evenly. Um, but the the numbers themselves tell a story about how we bury our treasures. Um and I think we need to have some honest conversation about that. Thank you. So um, where, I'm going to shift a little bit, but <laughs> this is great. We need to talk about this. What <laughs> preaching notes, aside from talking about money and how we need to talk about our pledge drive or whatever, how we need to think about how we're sharing our money, what notes do you have for preaching this text? We've talked about s'mores too. <laughs> Straight up s'mores. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think what I am what I'm t- teaching anybody I'm talking to about preaching these days, and so I'm working with some seminarians, and 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 the advice I'm giving them, I think, I, is true across the board. Um, I think it is time. It's been time to look at preaching as an extension of what's actually going on in your heart with God. You know, so if you aren't mm. wrestling with some of this stuff, don't bother preaching it because it's just going to be a nice, neat and tidy three point sermon as an intellectual exercise. Um, and that I, I'm convinced that's not a sermon. That's a lecture. Um, and I think perhaps nowhere more is that necessary and, and perhaps easy to do than in some of these very evocative readings that we get during Lent and into Easter. It is the sort of stuff that is image rich. Uh, It is scandalous in all the right ways. There's even comfort to be had. Uh, And so if you aren't wrestling with it, or if it hasn't touched your heart personally, pick a different piece of scripture. Don't bother saying it because it doesn't ring true. Hmm. I I think this could be an opportunity for some contemplative prayer and bringing in some creative ways of just making space for communities to reflect together. I know a lot of folks are back on Zoom and that the kind of shared reflection time during sermon, Ash Wednesday would be a perfect time to tell a story about a time you remember having, especially if folks aren't able to receive the imposition of ashes by someone else. And we're, I don't know if we're doing that this year or not, but to to bring, to touch people's hearts, get back to that place of connecting with the heart of, um, of that full embodiment for Lent, to listen to other stories among your community um, might be a powerful way to, to use the reflection time. I think to go back to a previous comment, the whole thing about integrity and um, trying to Put your piety with your faith, your acted out faith. You know, one of the things that the Buddhists can give us is practice, practice, practice. You know, um, practice what you say. And, and then just asking the question, so how do we do that? You know, what really bothers you about what's going on in the world? What's going on in your neighborhood? What bothers you about what's going on in your own soul, your own life right now? And 
and how have how can we identify the variety of voices that tell us how to live our lives <laughs> and what we should value and so forth hmm. so that we can turn around be intentional and practice what we say we believe I think it's important for us to remember that we are spiritual and material beings and that care for another human being is also an act of love mm. and that love is not and pastoral care is not just you know about uh, warm cozy feelings but about helping somebody get to the doctor or um, addressing the homeless person on your doorstep um, and being in solidarity with your neighborhood. <laughs> if you dare, you can bring up your budget. <laughs> Be that prophetic voice, you know, that says, look at it, you know, how are we doing this? How are mm. we doing a good job? How are we not so, you know? And uh, how could we do it better? So that we, the church is not just dancing around uh, problems, but rather trying to address them hmm. from within. I think it could also be a great time to look at those terms that we throw around as though we have a shared understanding of like what it means to, to penitent. What does penitence mean? What does it mean to repent? What mm -hmm. does it mean to to say we're sinful and to accept that sinfulness. Um, we use those terms a lot this Lent season. So considering this is kind of our introduction into even just a general overview of some basic teaching around what is the season of Lent. And, and it ha as Hillary spoke wonderfully about um, leading into Easter and what it prepares us for and that sense of preparation for baptism and for the celebration. And we, that's also part of the story that we're going to get to. I think we forget that people often don't know these things about the liturgical year, about the Episcopal church or about, um, you know, church history. And by skipping to a deeper place, um, we are leaving people behind or leaving them out. And so some of that is a good refresher, um, to remember to, um, just reorient ourselves to our space and our particular um, rhythm of future here. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, being a part of this podcast and sharing your wisdom and your time with us. We really appreciate it. Um, and uh, thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yes. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you very much. And good to be with you all. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Hillary, Lydia, and Sister Madeline. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you heard something that caught your ear today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine.
You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.